Please pray with me. Father, you are God, you and you alone are God. Um, all, the, all the idols of the world we recognize for the emptiness they are. And as we gather, we reject those, we come to you by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, we worship you. We pray that as we share your word, um, that uh, you would illuminate it for us, that we would understand and apply, and that we'd see Jesus for who he is, the God-man, uh, fully God, fully man, um, come to stand in our place to redeem us and to, to reconcile us to you. So help us to celebrate Jesus as we've done in song uh, that we would do in word and uh, to remember you're, you're stronger than darkness. You gave us the light of the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're starting in uh, John chapter 11, well-known passage in John as we're making our way through this uh, great gospel. And if you're going to divide the book of John up into, you know, parts and uh, to understand it, is there a structure to John and that sort of thing? And you see commentators will do that, and sometimes they'll do a more intricate structure of John, but John has 21 chapters. If you're going to do it just as a user-friendly way, the way I think it's most helpful to do is to take those first 11 verse, or chapters, and we're starting chapter 11 today, and look at it and say, this is Jesus' public ministry. And then chapters 12 through 21 and say, this is Jesus' passion ministry. Passion, His suffering. Jesus goes to the cross, He dies, He's buried, uh, and then, spoiler alert, He rises again, okay? So Jesus' public ministry and Jesus' passion ministry. And His public ministry is there to point to the passion ministry. And by the time you get to chapter 11, we see the account of Lazarus. He's going to, spoiler alert again, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so, I know, surprise. Um, and so, th this, th this being the last part of his public ministry, the resurrection of Lazarus is the apex of his public ministry. It's the high point of his public ministry before he moves into the passion ministry. And it's kind of an obvious thing to say if you raise somebody from the dead. It's not that Jesus hadn't done many signs before. It's not that they weren't great. Uh, but boy, this points to something very special. And the reason that we would say, well, this is the high point of his public ministry before he moves into his passion ministry is it's his greatest miracle. But there's another aspect of it, of it is that it is the deepest and clearest sign of what Jesus will do to save us. Right? His ability to look at the human problem, the human condition, death and sin, or sin and death, and to speak into that and to raise the dead, that tells us what Jesus is going to do. And so this passage is just the first part of it, and we're going to get the bad news before we get the good news. So God's Word, let's read it together, chapters, or uh, John 11, verses 1 through 16. It says, Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved 
Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Triumphal note at the end there, right? So let's look. So in this account, like I said, we're looking at the death of Lazarus, these first 16 verses. We're just going to divide it up into two sections. And the first is this, it's the news of Lazarus. It's how it kicks it off. Um, the situation with Lazarus in the first couple of verses, word comes to Jesus, right? And uh, you get kind of a framework about it. It's the couple of basic facts you might say about Lazarus. The first is where he lives, you know, where he's from. It's Bethany. It's this village. And there's another Bethany. And so it, it sets it off. Uh, from that by saying, hey, this one's, you know, this is the one that's close to Jerusalem. It's in Judea. Uh, it's where he lived. The other basic fact is who his family is. So he's the brother of Mary and Martha, and they're well known. Most first century Christians would have probably known about this family. Um, they were featured, for example, in Luke's gospel, uh, John, a lot of Mary's back then. And so John says about uh, the Mary in this passage in, uh, in verse 2, she's the one who anointed the Lord uh, with oil and with her hair. That happens in chapter 12. Interesting thing, remember that's the passion ministry. So part of what John is doing is he's identifying the family member, but that ointment uh, or that anointment was a preparation for a death, the death of Jesus. And part of what John is doing is connecting that to this one. And Jesus is going to operate in this uh, death scenario. And how's he going to do that? And then there's going to be another death scenario. And how's that going to turn out? And what Jesus does with Lazarus is going to be a preview uh, of that. So they've heard the story. Uh, that's something of a sign that's to come. And so as John frames it, uh, you know, you get that it's about Lazarus. Okay, this is about Lazarus. This is where he lived, Bethany. This is who his family is. He's the brother of Mary and Martha. But that, those are the basic facts. But the big fact is that he's sick. Lazarus was ill, stated four times in the first four verses, once in each verse. Sort of interesting. Uh, it's as though John wants to drive it home. Like if you get anything else out of the first four verses, know this, okay? So if you just survey it, verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Verse 2, uh, Mary anointed the Lord. 
Uh, it's her whose brother Lazarus was ill. They send a message in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard of it, this illness does not lead to death. Ill, ill, ill. Whatever you get, you got to get Lazarus is sick. Okay, unmistakably sick. And so out of that, the sisters, verse 3, they send a message to Jesus. They let him know. Um, interesting uh, how this is framed. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That they send a message tells you that Jesus wasn't right there in the vicinity. They've got to go send for him uh, kind of thing. And the message itself tells you, well, one, something that you already know. He's sick. Lazarus is ill. And this personal feature. Lazarus is a person Jesus loves. He whom you love is ill. Uh, there's a good personal connection here. It's not as though somebody comes and says, Lord, even though they've never met, Lord, my son is sick. Lord, my daughter is sick. Our friend is sick. This is somebody he knows. There's a personal connection. It's not a stranger or another person in the crowd. And in verse 4, Jesus, we, we get his response. And Jesus says this, uh, Interesting thing, he says, it is, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Huh. So, what would you do if uh, you were in Jesus' shoes? You had a good friend, you know, he whom you love, or she whom you love, uh, is in trouble, and they need you, and you can help. What would you do? You know, you'd probably go, right? You'd be a good friend and go. And what we see here is that Jesus doesn't seem to, I don't know, feel the urgency that the sisters feel uh, over the condition of their brother. You know, he doesn't go. Lazarus, whom you love, is sick and is bad enough to send word, and you expect Jesus to go, and Jesus doesn't go. He gets the message, and he says those things, and what he says is, number one, this doesn't lead to death. What an interesting thing to say. Lazarus does end up dying. Um, what's up with that? Is Jesus, like, would, did he make a bad guess? Do you look at Jesus and go, you know, well, he's a pretty good prophet, but medicine is just not his field, right? So his diagnostic skills are, you know, kind of below average. Or is there something else in play? And there's obviously something else in play because it doesn't lead ultimately to death. What's going to happen with Lazarus is going to make the, the death look like this, this thing that was a segue to the big thing, Okay. But the other thing, and, and this is the strongest part of this, this early, uh, the, the initial part of the account, is that God has a purpose in the illness. He says, what's it for? It is for the glory of God, similar to the blind man. Remember, in chapter 9, uh, they come across this blind man, and the disciples ask this question of the Lord Jesus. They say, well, who sinned? Right? Was it this man or was it his parents? Pretty good uh, seminary-type question, pretty good ethics-type question. Who sinned? And Jesus' response to them was a, uh, listen, we're going to overcome your like, limited framework of how this operates. No, this isn't the way you should look at it. What's going on here is it's in place. This man is blind so that the works of God can be on display. Right? It's not like you're, you're doing the, the sinful, you know, the math sin. 
And he's saying, God has a purpose so that his works can be on display in this man. You're like, well, what a bummer if you're this man and you're the one who gets chosen for that. Okay, sure, maybe. But also, you don't miss that you're also the one chosen, that God's works could be on display in you in a way so unique that it goes, you know, generation after generation to see the goodness and the power of the Lord Jesus. But very similar to this. Why is this going on, the disciples ask, and Jesus says, God is going to be at work here so that people can see. And that's what Jesus means by glory here. This is for God's glory. And there are two ways that sometimes we think about it. It's not in this way. The emphasis is not that God will be glorified, you know, He'll be praised, though that does happen. It's on the emphasis, or the emphasis is on this, that God's glory will be revealed, that people can see it. That they can see who God is and how He's... And by the way, that's the more common usage in the Gospel of John. But the particular way God's going to be glorified so that you can see His glory is in His Son. That's the second part of it. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it so that you can see His glory. Now, you're going to see in what He does here who Jesus is so that later whenever He tells the guys... The Father and I are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. They're going to go like, oh, that's right. That's right. Or at least they're going to have the basis. So it's for God's glory. It's in particular to reveal the glory of the Son. That's the first part. You get the news of Lazarus, okay? The second part, this is this long chunk, and we're going to put it together. It's Lazarus' death, God's plan, and the disciples' dullness. Lazarus' death, God's plan, and the disciples' dullness. Now, why put all those together? The reason is because that is the narrative. Okay, if you break those down, you see these little features. They all go together there. So, it, uh, as, you, as, you, uh, as we lay out this part of it, in verses 5 and 6, Jesus does exactly what you do not expect him to do. He delays. Uh, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He rushed to their home. Nope. It says, so uh, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's like saying, you know, my name's Stacy, right? My wife's name is Kara. Now, Stacy loved his wife, Kara. So when he heard or when he remembered it was her birthday, he did not give her a present, right? Yeah. Just trying to be like Jesus, man, you know? <laughs> Just following Jesus, baby, you know. Uh, so, but there's tension, you know, he, he loves them, he heard, and he stays two days longer. It's just, it's, it's not intuitive to the way that we would think of it. What's going on? It's, it's as though love is going the harder way here. Might be a better way, but it's harder. It's definitely not intuitive. And um, so, he stays two days longer. It's an urgent medically, and he waits. Verse 7, he finally decides to go after those two days. Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples in verse 8 push back on the plan for what seems to be a pretty good reason, at least on the surface, because they go, hey, you remember the guys with the rocks? Previous passage, they want to stone him. And uh, Jesus, uh, you know, does it, that doesn't happen. But that's where the guys with the rocks are, the people who want to stone you. They're in Judea. You sure that's a good idea? I mean, you're the rabbi, you're the teacher, we follow you, but seems like a bad plan. 
And so the irony is that they're worried about Jesus getting killed, and the, uh, the focus of their attention is on absolutely avoiding Jesus getting killed. But here's the irony. It's not by preventing Jesus from getting killed that the ultimate victory is going to be won. It's going to be just the opposite. So Jesus, verses 9 and 10, he answers them in this kind of riddle. Um, sometimes I like these, sometimes I wrestle with these, but this is what he says. So imagine you're following a, a, a guy, and he's a teacher, and he's done all these signs like Jesus, you're following him, and you've got this, listen, it's dangerous there. We go back to Judea, right? They wanted to stone you, that didn't go so great last time, they sort of ran us out, or we left, or whatever, and then Jesus says, no, no, no. Verses 9 and 10, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. That's his answer. And I just imagine that the disciples are a little bit like me, and they probably go, they just start looking at each other like, does, do you understand what he said? I mean, it's like when Jesus, I'll give you an example on this, when Jesus uh, gives the parable of the sower and the soils. And all of that. Well, he had garnered all this attention and people come out. And if you follow the passage, right, he doesn't explain it till after. So the big public part, Jesus just talks about dirt, seeds, and a farmer and how it goes. And so people respond to that and they go, well, what, what did he talk about? He talked about dirt, seeds, and a farmer just throwing his seeds around and which ones grew and which ones didn't. How, I mean, that's not very profound. Um, so anyway, on the surface of it, they hear this. What is Jesus talking about? Well, the, on the principled level, you know, he says, what Jesus is telling them, he's comparing the daytime and the nighttime. When do you work? You work during the day. You know, as a general rule, there's a time that uh, stuff is open so that you can get things done, and that's when you do what needs to be done in the day. It's when you walk around, that's when you get your work done. When, it's, when night happens, it's too late. And he's applying that basic concept to who's the light of this world? To Jesus. So they're all worried about getting killed. And he's saying, listen, there is a sovereign plan that I am here for. And as long as that window is open for me to get more done, I am not going to die. And as you're connected to me, you're not going to die either. This is how this goes. Now, there's going to be a time that night falls. But in this window of day, when uh, I'm getting these things done to point to the passion ministry, it points out, uh, there's nothing anybody's going to do. It's as though they remember the rocks, but they don't remember that Jesus wasn't stoned. You know, even though the best evidence of it going okay was Jesus right there talking to them. And so he answers them, listen, there's more for the mission to be done. And then he says something else that the disciples don't get, so he has to clear it up in verses 11 through 14. In 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken. Well, um, you know, sleep is this kind of metaphor, uh, but Jesus is pointing out what's going to happen is he's asleep, I'm going to wake him up. He's calling his shot. The disciples, though, verse 12, they don't get it. They say, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. 
And they still don't want to go to Judea, right? The guys with the rocks are there. And so they're like, let's, let's avoid this. And uh, so in part, they don't get it because they're not particularly spiritually sharp. But in part, they don't get it because they're thinking about the guys with the rocks. And, and, and Jesus is using sleep as this metaphor. It's, it's, uh, let's put it like this. The, the metaphor of sleep, uh, of, of, of using, uh, you know, to represent death, uh, and it's, it being temporary, using sleep as a word, I, I said that really gracefully, didn't I? Um, basically, to speak of death and refer to it as sleep, as a temporary thing, is a, was pretty commonly used way back in the day. But it's Jesus who ultimately fulfilled that. Death is final. It turns out it's Jesus who unfinalizes death. He's the one who makes it, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The, the answer to death is the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so in verses 13 and 14, they're in this total fog. The disciples are. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And so he finally tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. They thought wrong. He speaks bluntly, and he says in verse 15, again, this sort of counterintuitive thing. Now, somebody tells you that your friend died. How do you receive the news? Like, oh, uh, right, you, you feel it. Every once in a while, it doesn't take too long in this world, and you're going to, if you live long enough, you're going to lose people you love, people who are connected to you, Right? And so something will happen, it'll be a memory, and you have, this, uh, you have this wave of emotion or this sensation of loss that, that comes over you. And so whenever you get the news, you receive it. It's like, a, it's, it's like this internal blow. It's uh, an emotional you know, punch to your well-being, your internal well-being, right? It just shakes your world. And Jesus says this, Lazarus is dead, verse, uh, verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. That's a, that's a good thing. He said, I'm going to work this out for good. What a funny thing to say, because uh, presumably, Jesus would have prevented him from dying. It's like, listen, we didn't go. We waited two days. We didn't go. Now he's dead, and I'm glad it happened this way. Now, why would he say something like this? He says, following up, I'm glad we didn't go, verse 15, so that you may believe. Now, belief is a theme in John. There's probably, listen, there, there are things qualitatively the same like this that you've experienced in your life as a believer where you expected God to do something. You just knew if God was going to fix this, if he's going to fix it, he's going to fix it this way. And he didn't do that. And so qualitatively, uh, Jesus, you know, God has operated that way in your life before as a believer, but he's doing something very counterintuitive. They've seen Jesus do a jillion signs. They've been following him around. They are first-handers, and Jesus is saying, I want you to believe. Aren't these guys people who believe? You know, I mean, they're following him. They've witnessed to him. They're serving him in his ministry. And yeah, they believe, but they're still not getting it. They've seen his power, but they don't really see who Jesus is, so they don't believe on that level. Lazarus, when they get there, is going to be good and dead. Uh, we, back in the day, we used to refer to this as graveyard dead, right? You don't make a mistake. In the, in the, you write, he's buried, 
when you get there. Cold and stinky, that part's in the text, the stinky part. Jesus is going to overrule the grave. He's going to be the appellate court. When the appeal comes up, he's going to reverse the decision. Um, And then it ends with Thomas, verse 16. Thomas called the twin. Remember, we're talking about the dullness of the disciples uh, with the plan of God. And uh, Thomas says this. It says, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, on a light note, you see how he's referred to as the twin, and people say, well, he's, he obviously had a twin brother, and sometimes there's speculation on who that might be, but we don't know. Maybe he, and also, there's kind of an interesting thing, it's interesting to me, Thomas Didymus, Thomas the twin, uh, maybe he has a twin, uh, maybe it's somebody not named, maybe it's somebody is, but keep in mind, that was pretty common, just like if somebody calls uh, a guy junior, Maybe he's not, that's not really his name. He's got a dad who's named above him, but uh, maybe he's also just somebody who picked up a nickname. Or I'll give you an example, um, something that's common. There are people who are named Smith, who are not Smiths. There are people who are named Baker, who are not Bakers. There are people who are named Cooper, who are not Coopers. Get the idea, right? And so it's possible that on this, that it's just a way that they would Uh, recognize him and highlight him as the person he was. But here's the funny thing. We don't know that much about Thomas, the individual, outside of the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, he's seen as the doubter. You know, he's the guy who's always asking for evidence toward, you know, the end of the book. They say Jesus is raised. Thomas wasn't there. He's like, I want, I'm not going to believe this until I see his hands, uh, you know, the wounds that he's got. And I'm going to put my hands in those wounds and, and everything. And, of course, Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. And doubting Thomas doesn't doubt anymore. He answers his doubt. But in this passage, I think it's mixed. I don't think it's quite fair to call Thomas, you know, this unruly doubter. And here's why. It, it's mixed. He's a little grumbly, all right? He doesn't want to go. Very clearly, he doesn't want to go. It's a little bit like asking your eight-year-old, you know, to clean his room, and he's like, grumble, grumble, grumble. It's the burden of, you know, slave labor and, you know, the weight of the world on my shoulder. You know, he doesn't have a great attitude about it. Thomas doesn't. We're going to Judea, the master says, and he's not happy about it. But we should cut him some slack because unlike your eight-year-old, your eight-year-old isn't afraid of dying. He just doesn't want to do it. And Thomas is afraid of dying. But it's also uh, courageous. He goes and he encourages the others to go. He's wrong, but he's he's brave and wrong, okay? And uh, so, you know, Jesus is going to answer all of that. So that's the initial part. The setting, Jesus does what you don't expect him to do a couple of times through. You expect him to rush to Lazarus' side, uh, prevent him from dying. He doesn't do that. You expect him to avoid Judea. Uh, he doesn't do that. And he says he's glad about this. So what do we do with just this initial part? Uh, first of all, don't miss the Christology. Christology in the area of theology is the doctrine of Christ. What do, we, what do we learn about Christ? How are we to understand who, who Jesus is? And a couple of things, just on a very basic level. The first is the mind of Jesus, okay? He clearly knows. He knows what nobody else knows. Everybody else is operating in the passage uh, in a certain fog, but not Jesus. He clearly knows. He knows Lazarus is going to die. He's dead, and he's going to raise him. He's asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. 
And when they misunderstand, no, he's died. And I'm glad so that you can see what's going to happen here. I'm going to fix his dead problem, okay? Uh, you know, the disciples, they're all worried about they're, that they're going to die. They're not going to die yet. And Jesus tells them, it's still light out, verse 9. He clearly knows. Now, knowing all the humanly unknowable is deity stuff. But it's also in concert and in, in cooperation and in tune with the Father's stuff. It's not random. That's not how this is happening. John 11 doesn't come out of left field. It's going to a definite redemptive place, and Jesus knows this. So you see it in the mind of Christ. Second is the heart of Jesus. We see that Jesus loves. Verse 3, they send message, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and his sister. He's not just heartlessly, robotically doing a mission. Um, it's not detached. Even in patience and through the hard parts, it says this, he loved Mary, Martha, Lazarus, so he waited. Uh, the disciples kept missing the mission, so he was glad, verse 15, that he waited. Now, the thing about the harder thing is that it is harder. Right? There's no shortcuts in good parenting, no shortcuts in good teaching and leading, and there's no shortcuts in love like this. The harder thing is harder, but that's what Jesus wanted when it was the better thing. Because Jesus was working for something more, even, here's what they don't see. What's going on in their present is everything that they can see that's dominating. Seems like there could be nothing more important than that. And Jesus is working for something even more important than that. All right, a little rationale for John. You know, John, over and over again, tells you, believe in Jesus. Believe. And this passage just reinforces this. Before we ever even get to the miracle, he knows, he cares, and he's going to raise the dead. And we haven't even gotten to his biggest feet yet. So Christology, don't miss the uniqueness of Jesus, the mind and heart of Jesus. Somebody who knows, somebody who cares, somebody who loves. All right. Um, the, the way I want to end, though, since we're not getting to the, the, the big moment, you know, Lazarus uh, come out of the grave, I want to give you three lessons for the follower of Jesus. And it's appropriate to do that here because the main theology is a little bit later, and it makes it like a good opportunity here to, for us to ask well, okay, how does this work? How do we understand it? If we're going to follow Jesus and do that well and faithfully, uh, what are some things that we should know? So let me give you three, three lessons for the follower of Jesus. The first is this. Notice how the Christian faith uh, in Scripture, you know, they're inextricably tied, addresses real life. It's a, it hits real life straight on. People can give you the you know, yeah, yeah, but what are you going to say? This is what you believe. And so the accusation about Christian, Christianity is that it's the opposite. They say, you guys are all about wishful thinking. I don't have time to unpack this and, you know. But let me just say this. If, you, if somebody has a materialistic worldview, all they believe is like what you can appropriate with your senses, you know, that you can touch, smell, taste, and so on. If, if, if the material world is all there is, they don't have any basis to recognize evil. So what's the problem? And if you just have a vague spirituality, you can't, you can't connect the ethic to the real world we live in that's burdened by real sin and evil, okay? You want to know the best summary 
on life in the Bible, I think if you're going to give it a one-verse summary, I think the best way that you could get it, if you want to just understand how the world works and what God is doing in it, is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Everything you experience is burdened by that reality. You're going to get married someday if you're a young person and you're going to look at that person and you're just going to go... You know, she's, you know, she's my everything, or, or, you know, he's so, I mean, you're probably wrong about this, but you're like, he's so wonderful, right? Um, and part of your vows is, I'm going to love you till what? Like, there's a time limit on that commitment. The Bible speaks into this reality, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Puts those, listen, it, it gives hope without losing honesty. And here you see it in this passage, addressing real life. You see the pain and severity of life. You see suffering and death. There's fear. There's grief. There's going to be disappointment and anger. But whatever else there is, there is no pretending. There's no acting like uh, this isn't so. There's this demonstration of an ability to answer the pain and severity of life. What Jesus is doing is, here's real life, and he's demonstrating his ability to answer it. The Bible, Christian faith, addresses real life, which is a big deal to you because that's where you live. Your pain is really painful. Your losses are really gone, and so on. Number two, second lesson, your expectations don't always match up with God's plan. I don't know if you've ever been in this spot. Have you ever just, just known and prayed to the Lord, Lord, here's the problem, here's what you can do, and this will be awesome. And the Lord tells you in not so many words, no thanks, right? This will be, be great, you know, you and I will do this together, and boom, watch this, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll thank you, and I'll give you the glory, and everybody will be like, yay, God, and everything, and God's like, no, I don't think so. And you're trying to sort that stuff out. Mary and Martha, and maybe Lazarus even, expected Jesus to make haste. He didn't. The disciples expected Jesus to avoid Judea because it was so dangerous. He didn't. None of what Jesus seemed to be doing or, or, or doing seemed to make any sense to them. But it did. Because Jesus knew more and saw more than they did. And Jesus always knows more and sees more than you do. You may expect God to do something he's not going to do. It doesn't mean he's absent or without a plan. It just means his plan is different than what you expect. Happens a lot. It's one of the big challenges of everyday faith is that, uh, that you would think, it's, it's like whenever the, the creature lectures the all-knowing God that he should know better, uh, right? So there's Brace yourself, I'll put it that way. God acts as if he knows more than you. Number three, number two leads us into this. God sometimes allows bad things for a good purpose, okay? That means tough things are going to come into your life, and God's got a good plan. Uh, chapter nine, the man born blind, that's a bad thing. That's a tough thing to deal with, but he allowed it for a good purpose. Uh, the, the best commentary or the best evidence of this is the cross, God allowing a, a bad thing for a good purpose. Now, I'll say this. There are a lot of you who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, and you're probably thinking, wait, he's going to end the sermon on this? I already know this, right? Like, 
like uh, very anticlimactic. And I would just point out, even if you do know this, you're probably going to need a reminder. You know, because when it gets tough, that's whenever you've got to remember this. And I'll say this too, that when people hear, listen, God allows bad things for a good purpose, you go, I'm not, I don't like that. And I got to say, I agree with you. I don't like it either. I, I will say that if we're going to talk about reality, I want to eat pizza and get ripped, but it doesn't work that way. You know? Why do I say it that way? Because of our spiritual condition, there are some things that you will not ever get that you have to get if you don't go through hardship. I mean, there are going to be certain things in your life, if you live long enough, you know this, that you have to let go of, but without hardship, you'll never let go of it. You won't do it without hardship. There are things that you have to come to realize that you're never going to realize if you don't go through that. There are things that you have to embrace, that you have to bank your life on, that you're never going to do it without the hardship, without the suffering, without the setback. Um, Look at this passage. Who doesn't see? Well, Mary and Martha. And it says in this passage, Jesus loved them, so he waited. The bad thing a better thing. Uh, the disciples, uh, I'm, I'm glad we waited so that you'll believe the bad thing for a better thing. Uh, so it's real life, which means it's real hard, which means a lot of times the Almighty is going to contravene your expectations. He's going to violate your assumptions, and He allows a bad thing, even though nobody wants that. Nobody in the passage wants that. You don't want that in your life so that the best thing can open up for you. Do you trust the goodness and the kindness of God, the one who didn't even spare his own son, even when you can't connect the dots, to actually allow bad, some tough things to come into your life, even pretty devastating things, to open up for you the best thing, the thing that you have to have? You know, your turn's going to come in that. I I don't like that reality, but your turn's going to come in that. And so you might be, as you're going through it, grieving or disappointed or mad or scared or so on. But like this passage, because he loves you, there can be a time that he can wait uh, to bring out this better thing for you. Uh, The problem can deepen so that the salvation uh, can come to fruition. Jesus is really good, but you'll know the best of it in the hardest, most severe parts of life. And the hardest, most severe parts of life are coming for you. And as we cling to the one, this Jesus, part of what we see here is the hardest, most severe parts of life are coming my direction. Why Jesus? Because he's the one who can look at Lazarus cold and dead and say, come forth. That's why. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for an honest scripture, not one that we have to rationalize around, but one that speaks to true life where we are. And we do more this morning than admire the the mind and heart of Jesus. You know, we behold it and we're amazed that he would identify with us and that knowing what he knows and um, that one like him would so identify with us that he would become one of us and connect himself to us love us. He's our friend. Uh, You know, he speaks of Lazarus as their friend. 
Thank you for a Savior. Thank you for one greater, more, stronger than the darkness. We celebrate Jesus and we put our hope in him. We pray for friends here uh, who are you know, they're trying to figure out life, and maybe they're not believers just yet, and they're trying to figure out life, and we pray that by the power of your Spirit and by your goodness, that you would speak into their lives and draw them to believe in Jesus so that they can have eternal life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.